Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. What is your frame of reference? When I ask that question, I I think about the things that guides our decisions. So we're in tire season. People are changing their tires. Uh, What's the framework for your your tire choices? Anybody? Well, quiet. Price? Anything else? No? (laughs) Just price? So what about safety? Velocity? Someone say velocity? (laughs) Um, speed. So my, my frame of reference for tires is safety and budget. So safety, because I know my wife's going to be driving this car and, uh, I want it to be super safe and, uh, and then, then budget. So I went to buy tires and, uh, so I was talking to the guy with the phone, great place. I'll shout out to Montreal tires near Henry, Henry Barassa. And, um, so there was like these American made tires or non-American made tires. And I said, well, what do you think? One was like 900 and something. The other ones were 700 and something. He's like, trust me, you know, they check off the list for all the stuff. You're going to be fine. So I'm like, okay, let's go for if they're safe. But then I walk in the store, they messed up my order. They, not they messed it up, the tires weren't in. And they thought they were in and something happened. So in the end, the guy says, hey, we've got some used tires if you want to pick up some tires, used ones. And they're all like nine on 10. And he brought three down and he told one of his workers, he's like, he looked at them, he's like, they keep this one. And I said, well, what's it with this one? He goes, this is like off of rentals. It's like between 100 and 1,000 kilometers on these tires. I'll give it to you for $100 each installed. I said, are they safe? Yes, check. 400 bucks, I'm sold. I'm good. So I, I saved like $300 in the moment. I was so happy about that. And that was my frame of reference uh, for tires. But, but we need a frame of reference for much bigger things in life. We need a frame of reference actually for our whole life. And when we talk about a framework, we talk about the thing or the idea or the values or the faith that grounds our life. And it's the thing that gives us perspective or shapes our actions or shapes our reactions to things even more than our actions. And these days, I have this sense that a lot of us, both Christ followers and just everyone in general in our society, are struggling with that are struggling with a framework that gives them perspective or a framework that guides them in their actions and reactions. And so today we're starting a a new series, a short series only for this month called Grounded From Above. And if you were with us in our last series before Easter, it was a mini-series starting in the book of Revelation. Well, this is like the second mini-series in Revelation, and it's going to be focused on chapters 4 and 5. In this couple of chapters, John actually begins to share, the Apostle John who writes this letter, begins to share the vision that Jesus was giving him. And that's what revelation is about. The word revelation or apocalypto or it means to, an unveiling is taking place. And John gets to see something that Jesus shows him. Now we walk through chapters 1 and 3 and we don't really start to see that vision at first. But Jesus does speak to the churches. He speaks to these seven churches in Asia Minor. So Jesus' voice is heard among the church. And it's really preparation for what's coming because these churches need to see this or hear this vision that John sees. 
These same churches that we talked about last month, and if you weren't with us, you can go back and either watch or listen to the podcast. We called it flickering light limestands because these churches were small communities in the big sea of the Roman Empire, and we just we walked through their struggles and the words of Jesus to them. Well, these same churches will need to read and hear what we describe next. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation 14, uh, sorry, chapter 4. And we're going to read this together. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask you to stand as we do this. Because we were worshiping and praying. And I'm like, this is a stand-up moment. But seven of us stood uh, as, we were, as we were doing that. So I'm going to just, I invite you to stand as we read this. Because I think this is such a beautiful text. And so if you want to respond or, you know, affirm anything you read in this text, go for it. Okay? Um, you're welcome. So here we go. After this, I looked... And there in heaven, a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes around and inside, day and night without ceasing, they sing, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. God, when we say amen to this, we just invite you to lead us and guide us and speak to us um, through this part of of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. That was a scripture to say amen to, no? Like, wasn't it? it, It's an amazing scripture. I just, like, I love it. Um, Well, 
Revelation 4, as we jump into this this week and for the next few weeks, 4 and 5, what comes to mind here is, is, is this idea of being grounded. Now, let me ask you this question. When you think of the word grounded, what comes to mind when someone is grounded? Often we think of like a stake in the ground, like if you go camping and you put a stake in the ground so your tent doesn't fly away. If you do any electrical work in your house or hire someone to do it, they often find the ground wire, right? Because that's connected to the ground, so it's kind of, uh, you know... I don't know the whole reason why, but anyways, I know it works. And, uh, and then there's like when you build something, there's a cement foundation. You ground stuff into that cement or poles or things like that. Actually, uh, two kids this morning, Alec and Emma, helped me put the two flags that you saw on the grass. And we took a rock and grounded the stake in the ground and we put the flag so the flag doesn't fly away, right? It was grounded. So that's kind of the usual way where we ground ourselves downward into something. This vision is a little different. It grounds John, but in a different way. It's a complete opposite direction. Because John hears a voice that says, come up. John sees a door open in heaven after he shares the message of Jesus to these churches. He says, after this, he sees a door open in heaven and he hears a voice saying, come up. That's a different kind of, it's counterintuitive. Well, not so counterintuitive if you've been mountain climbing. Like, I've never climbed a mountain with ropes, but if you've seen it or talked to people, and there's some images on the screen, uh, I think it's very different because when you're climbing like that, you know, different than just kind of climbing up Mount Tremblant or climbing up, like, in St. Hyacinth or places like that, uh, you're, you're, when you climb, like, just do normal hiking, you're grounded. But when you do that kind of mountain climbing, you're grounded from above, Right? Like you're pulling on something that's very solid above you. It's beyond your reach. It's above you. And it's more solid than what's below you, especially if you're hanging on for dear life. That would be me because I'm just afraid of heights and don't get me on a roof. Uh, that'll freak me out. But when John is invited to come up and to see this vision, he's starting to learn something that's counterintuitive for what it means to be grounded. For him, he's starting to realize that to be truly grounded in life, we need to be grounded above and not just below. Where? Well, he's invited into God's space. He's invited into heaven. The do open door into heaven is an invitation. He's not physically there in a sense he sees it it's a vision that God gives him but he's he's invited to come up and and the words of Jesus says I'm going to show you what's going to take place after this in other words from his present time his present moment what they're walking through even as a church and what he's even walking through being in prison I'm going to show you what's going to happen after this I'm going to show you what how God is going to work in human history how God's going to work through and in the church and then at once he says, I was in the spirit. At once, I was in the spirit. In, in a moment, he sees something completely different. And then he says, there in heaven stood a throne and one seated on the throne. It's not wild. John is suddenly transported into God's space, into heaven. Now, if you're here for the first time, you might not have heard me or us say this, but I've said this often, heaven is not a faraway place where we go too far away. Heaven and earth exist simultaneously. Our space, God's space. The resurrection and ascension help us understand that heaven exists, but in a different realm as Jesus ascends into heaven. He's not going millions of miles away. He's going into God's space. 
And so John sees this door open and this, and this spirit-empowered transportation. Don't try this at home. But I can imagine uh, C.S. Lewis's imagery here in the Chronicles of Narnia when he writes the, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. And he has this kind of imagery in some of his other books. But if you know the story, there's two girls and two boys, brothers and sisters, and they're staying with their uncle, and they're in a big mansion, an old rickety mansion, and little Lucy, she walks into an abandoned room that no one goes into, and she sees at the back of the room this big figure and a curtain over the figure, and she pulls the curtain, and there's this wardrobe there. She opens the doors in the curiosity of a little girl, and she sees a bunch of winter coats and she just kind of walks inside to explore what's in this wardrobe and suddenly she just keeps walking and walking and walking and she feels snow under her feet she sees a forest in the winter and she sees a lampstand and she's like where the heck am i it's like this wardrobe transported her into another world and when she meets the lion of the world aslan he often has said in this moment what happens here affects your world. It's, hap- it's, it's simultaneously happening. And that's C.S. Lewis's image of, of that. I love it. See, revelation, the word revelation in this whole letter is an unveiling. It, it's an apocalyptic moment where, where the church and John and us could see what we don't often see, but what we need to see, where, where this vision starts here is right in front of God's throne, and there's a purpose for that. Now, we know that Revelation is going to reveal things after this, like, John, like Jesus hears the words of, John hears the words of Jesus tell him. Things that, that John will need to hear, that the churches in, in Asia Minor will need to hear, things that we need to hear and understand, things that will lead right up until new creation. But here's, here's the beautiful part of this, these next couple of chapters. Before John sees the future, he encounters the one who holds the future. I want to put that one on the screen so we remember it. Before John sees the future or sees what's next, and even the after this takes place is not necessarily this whole predictive sense. There's some of that in there. We've said it in the last series. The letter of Revelation is a little bit more prophetic and pastoral, even though it talks about the future. But before John sees the future, he encounters the one who holds the future. And this is so important for someone like him who's a Christian and a Christ follower in the first century. And these churches that we looked at last month that were both struggling because of oppression, but also because of prosperity sometimes. Now, in the oppressive side, from AD 57 to AD 95, the Roman Empire was increasingly more aggressive against the church. The church is, that's getting this letter has felt the oppression and persecution and difficulty. By 95 AD, 40,000 Christians have been killed under the emperor Domitian. They desperately need perspective. They desperately need a framework. They desperately need a vision. Like, what are we doing? What's happening here? What can they possibly ground themselves in? Because the ground beneath them isn't giving them the stability they need. But John sees a vision, a vision of God, a vision of the one who sits on the throne. Now, why would John need this vision? Interestingly enough, like John hung out with Jesus. He followed Jesus in the early days, the the three and a half years where Jesus discipled his first followers. He was discipled by Jesus. He watched Jesus die and resurrect. John has been discipling people for years. 
John heard about God. As a Jew, he would have heard about God. He would have understood a Jewish understanding of God, which is part of our Christian story. Uh, And he would have understood even more clearly through Jesus, God's son, who God is. We know that Jesus shows us the best reflection, the best revelation, the best expression of who God is. Why? So John saw all that, knew all that, understood all that. But this is extraordinary. This is different because it's like the curtain is pulled back. The curtain is pulled back and he's in God's space. He didn't just hear about it or learn about it in his Jewish faith. He didn't just hear from Jesus who God was. He is now in God's space and he sees the one who's seated on the throne. What does he see? I'm going to walk through some images um, because I think that will be helpful for us. And John uses the word like so a lot, like like this or like that. And so that's important for us because when we interpret texts like Revelation, we cannot be overly dogmatic about it. We can't say it's exactly this because even John says it's like this, right? That's important to know. Like when they talk about eternity and new creation and they talk about, you know, I don't know, stringed instruments, you know, we can't really say exactly what they look like. They were like stringed instruments. I don't know if it was like Steve's acoustic guitar or some electric guitar or some kind of stand-up bass. I have no, or maybe violin. I have no idea. So we can't really be dogmatic about that. But there's a, a few descriptions here that are helpful. So one is, first, John sees the one who sits on the throne, God, looks like these two precious stones, Jasper and Carnelian. These are translucent stones, revealing, concealing at the same time. If you put light behind them, often light kind of comes through them, multicolored. It's beautiful. And there's this idea that God is beautiful and radiant and awesome and diverse in how we see him in his beauty. But then around the throne, we see a couple of things. We see a rainbow. John says that he sees a rainbow around God's throne. Now, there's 430 references in Revelation from the Old Testament. So there's, John's letter is steeped in Old Testament ideas, and this is very possible a reference to, to Noah and the story of Noah, where um, the earth is destroyed by a flood, and God promises at the end through his covenant with Noah that God will never destroy the earth in judgment again and a rainbow is a sign of that and there's a sign of promise and hope and mercy and compassion and also a sense of what new creation will be like so this rainbow there is significant then john sees 24 thrones and 24 elders on it now I, I looked through like pictures of you know artists and everything that have tried to depict this, and I kept looking at them like, should we show one? Should we throw some on the screen? And some were beautiful, but then every picture is limiting. So I'll let you like leave it to your imagination what all this looks like. Um, I saw some that looked amazing. I saw some that looked like '90s cartoons, like Gem and the Misfits. You know, like anybody remember like or He-Man? Like, like sorry, that's like I'm dating myself to like cartoons after school. But like some of them looked like that. So it was just weird. But so I'm like, I'm gonna leave it to your imagination. Twenty-four thrones, twenty-four elders around the throne. Twenty-four is a unique number. Twelve and twelve together. Some would say that the 24 is a contrast to the 24 guards that the emperor had at his disposal. Unlikely. But we don't want to be dogmatic. But these 24 elders are more than likely this unique number of 12 and 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. White robes, 
maybe reflecting the idea that they've been refined by fire, refined by the Holy Spirit, refined by God's work in their lives. Crowns, often a, an image of life and eternal life and reward in the scriptures or in, in Revelation. So these 24 elders are refined. Um, you know, they've been through the fire in a sense, metaphorically. They, 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 their life has been, you know, bestowed on them by God, this crown. But the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles representing the redeemed community of God before and after Christ, this one big story. The first Israel, Jesus who represents the true Israelite and the continuation of Israel's story in the church. This 24 elders representing God's people throughout history around God's throne. And then there's these four living creatures. And again, they all, John sees them as like this, you know, one like a lion or like an ox or like a human or like an eagle. Some like to see these as the four gospels. In fact, that church in Barcelona, uh, that's just a beautiful, wonderful church. There's four posts that represent each gospel and each of these images are on the top of those posts. It's possible. But more than likely, it's just creation. The lion, who is the leader of the wild beasts, and the ox, who's a leader of the tamed beasts, and, and eagles that are often the leader of the flying birds, you know, representatively. And then humans. God has given humanity stewardship over creation. And you see this all around God's throne. Creation reflected around God's throne. His creation gathers around him with the birds and the beasts and humanity all around God's throne. But it's not just around God's throne. Something comes out of God's throne. as flashes and rumbling. And that's amazing because often God's activity in history in the scriptures is reflected with these kinds of noises and sounds in this way. Exodus 19, when Moses goes up the mountain, Mount Sinai, God is present and active, and they hear, they see flashing, they hear thunder, they hear these noises. And as, as uh, you read through Revelation, chapter 6 to 19, when, when the seals are opened up, or the trumpets uh, come out in, in series of sevens, or the bowls are poured out, these kind of metaphors of God's action in history, every single time there's lightning and flashing and thunder and rumbling. So it's as though... God is intervening. He's at work. He doesn't remain silent. He doesn't remain idle. He, has, he acts in love, but also in judgment, and he's acting. He's intervening. And then there's the seven torches in front of the throne, the seven spirits. This has already been a reflection in Revelation of the work of the Holy Spirit. Revelation is very Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present, involved, active in all of God's purposes in a complete way. Often the number seven means completion. But here's the, here's a wild card in the image. It's the sea. There's a sea in front of all this. But the strange thing is everything so far has been slightly positive. But in Revelation, the sea often reflects opposition to God's will. In fact, later in chapter 13, the first beast that comes out of the sea, reflecting one of the oppositions to God's will, either religion, religion or politics in some way, the world's uh, systems, comes out of the sea. And the dragon depicted later in Revelation is kind of you know, sitting on the shore of the sea. So Revelation shows us that what comes out of the sea is often opposition to God's will. There's creation stories where people believe the sea was chaotic. In the first century, the sea was feared, often uncontrollable. 
And yet here there's this sea in front of God's throne. And it's almost as though God is fully aware of evil. He's fully aware of the injustice in the world. He's fully aware of what's going on. But in his mercy, he's waiting to bring judgment. In his mercy, he's waiting to make things right because he will make things right. And the, this is, the, this is the, the most encouraging part for me. The chaos of the sea is, is contained before God. God contains it. He can use it. He can remove it. But for now, it's present. And before God, it's calm. It's not chaotic. In other words, it's not above God. It's not above his power. In fact, Revelation 21 and 22 says, one day the sea will be no more. And that's the same chapter that says, one day there will be no more tears, no more pain. The sea will be gone. In other words, the evil and injustice that comes from the sea, likely the principalities and powers of our world, will be no more. Isn't that amazing? And then there's a few words that we see. We'll get into them maybe in another week or so, but I want to just highlight three. One is the word almighty, the Lord God almighty. This is one of John's favorite words, pantokratos in Greek, is my one Greek word for the year, okay? Um, it means one, will, one with all might and will and power and strength. This one author, and I put, put her quote on the, on the board, I love it. She says that in, in, in describing almighty, it means someone who's not a victim of circumstance nor of human manipulation. In other words, God's power is above influence. God's power is above manipulation. He, in his love, he responds. In his love, he acts. In his love, he, he intersects. But he can never be forced or manipulated into anything. The Lord God is almighty. This is what John hears in worship. He's one who created all things. And by his will, all things were created. He was always present, never a time without his existence. And then the beautiful three times, holy, holy, holy. This beautiful description of God is pure and set apart. This is what John hears in the middle of what he sees as he's looking at the one seated on the throne. And here's the kind of the big idea here. This is important for you and me. All attention, all attention is on the one sitting on the throne. He is the focal point. He is the centerpiece. He is the centering vision. He is the one on the throne that pulls our focus to the center and everything flows from him. Think about that. The one seated on the throne is the centering vision of this image that John sees as he sees and peeks into God's space he pulls our focus to the center and everything, everything, all life comes from him. He's the focal point. And this is so important for John. It's important for you and me. John had to see this first before he sees anything else. What he sees in, in chapter 4 and 5, he has to see it first because it's essential for what comes, what comes next. See, for us, we live in a world in a season where... There is chaos, there is evil, there is injustice. And Revelation actually describes the struggles in our world as we read through it. And it's describing it over and over again as we read, we'll read later in chapter 6 to 19. But John needs to see this vision first. John needs to see the one sitting on the throne first and then the lamb in the next chapter. 
And here's, I think, why, and it just begs the question for me, what is your life centered around? What grounds your life? What's the, what's the reference point for you? What's the framework for your life? What grounds me? What grounds you? Well, John hears the words, come, look, look up. I want to show you. I want to show you what will ground you. And he sees the one sitting on the throne. He's grounded from above. You know, the churches that were reading this, Laodicea, Ephesus, the others, they needed to read this. They needed to see this. They needed to know this. They were, they were struggling. They felt the opposition. They felt the distractions. They needed this to be grounded in a big, true vision of God. They needed that. John needed that. John needed to see this. I, I, I'll say I, I know the struggle of a pastor, especially pastoring through a pandemic. But John, man, John saw a lot. John was, actually had this vision sitting on a pile of rocks in a prison island called Patmos because of his faith, because he was pastoring these churches. So John is sitting there. He's pastoring churches during the Roman Empire. We think, you know, we talk about our world being post-Christian or we live in a secular world. And there's a whole bunch of reasons, you know, why we can talk about that historically. But John lived in a pre-Christian world. John lived in a world where Christianity never had influence. John lived in a world where Jesus initially was just a person in Palestine and it was not spread around the world. These churches were little, little blips in the middle of the Roman Empire. John had no no sense of what we understand as two billion Christians in the world. John is sitting on a pile of rocks on an island in Patmos all by himself. And that was his job, move these rocks. Move these rocks. Move these rocks. And imagine, you know, God, your, your work brought me here. Um, Jesus, thanks for the discipleship. Moving these rocks. John needed this vision. He needed this vision. Thousands of Christians dead in the empire. But I love it because... The beginning of Revelation 1 tells us that John got this vision on the Lord's day. Just like us, it's Sunday. Resurrection day. He wasn't with his church or churches. He was by himself, but it was the Lord's day. And, but he's thinking, I'm with the church. I'm going to worship. I'm going to pray. Maybe he found like a morsel of bread, and when they gave him some bread, he just paused and quietly broke the bread, imagining his other friends and, 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 and fellow believers from his church is breaking bread, and I'm breaking bread, Christ's body broken for me, and remembering I'm part of that body. I'm alone, but I'm part of that body. It's the Lord's day, so he's worshiping, he's praying, he's thinking of the church. And then the Spirit takes him into this vision, like from rocks to revelation. Crazy. How much John needed that perspective? But what about you and me? We need that perspective. We need that vision. We need to be grounded from above. We're constantly distracted by lesser gods. We're constantly distracted by lesser visions. 
We're constantly fed the lie of individualism and consumerism and extreme politics on the left and right ideologies. We're constantly hit with the false promise of selfish pleasure and pride. And, 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 and even beyond that, in these days, I can just sense in so many people, there's a constant sense of, of concern, of uncertainty, maybe of fear. And we feel the sea of chaos that's reflected in our world. The sea of chaos that's reflected in our world. And then we read John's vision and we step back and say, okay, God is still sovereign. God is sovereign over all of this. God can contain the sea. The sea is not above God. Nothing can influence him. Nothing can manipulate him. He's got the chaos contained. He can use it for his purposes. It's not beyond his power or beyond his plans. And we read the God who created later in Revelation is the God who leads us into new creation. God is sovereign. And that's why this vision is so important. That's why you and me need to be grounded from above and not just below. I mean, I'm all for you know, being grounded in that way. But even early in the Proverbs, we read the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is what we need to be grounded in life, but it's the fear of God. It's the, the, the awe, awestruck wonder and worship of God in our lives that leads to wisdom, that leads to being grounded from above. Michael Gorman says this, the voice of Christ summons him into heaven. So talking about Jesus, talking about John hearing this, the voice of Christ summons him, John, into heaven to see the future. But before he can see the future, he must see who holds the future and who is worthy to bring about that future. Hmm. You know, John will soon tell us what he sees. John's going to tell us how God will bring about new creation. John's going to tell us how God will make things right, how God's going to judge evil. And some of what he sees, he knows he and his churches will go through. And many have gone through church history and some to come. But he needs to see who God is first. He needs to see who God is first before he sees what God will do. And he needs the lenses of Revelation 4 and 5. And you and I, we need the lenses of Revelation 4 and 5. We need the framework. Here's what it is. Like, I'm wearing glasses, but not all of us wear glasses. But all of us need lenses. We don't all wear glasses, but we all need better lenses to be grounded in the vision of who God is, to be grounded from above, to be grounded in the one who sits on the throne, who, who pulls everything towards the center, and yet everything flows from the center. I'm going to ask the team to come up as we move towards uh, just a time of worship and communion this morning. But I just want us to think about this. We all need better lenses. How many of us these days just struggle when we see our lives, when we see what's going on in the world? How many of us, even in the amazing, wonderful things, sometimes put all of our bets on that, all of our bets on the prosperity, all of our bets on the increases, all of our bets on the graphs going up and to the right, all of our bets on, oh, this is great, oh, this is comfortable, oh, this is, this is good. And some of us lean towards that so much, we forget what truly grounds us. And some of us are on the other side struggling because we you know, we, we feel like we're missing some of those things and we're struggling through that. And whether it's through poverty or prosperity, that's neither of those things ground us in Christ. 
It's looking above and being grounded in who God is. I was really inspired by this story years ago, and I was thinking about it this week as I was reading through, John, uh, through Revelation 4, because it reminded me of, the, uh, of one of the images we saw, but there's a time in the previous century where Christians were living in Poland in a very atheistic commun- you know, communist regime. And, and I'm not going to talk politics here or anything like that. But there was, they, they were in a time post-World War, there was a city, a Polish city called, called Nowa Huta. Cool name. It was designed by the Soviets, one of two other cities under the Soviet Union, designed by the Soviets after World War II to become like a worker's paradise. It was social engineering at its most intensity. They thought they were going to be the best example of social engineering in the world. This city was going to show the world how state-controlled resources and, and everything would be a worker's paradise, and they would everything would run through their hands and all that kind of stuff. In all of their plans and all of their dreams for this best example of social engineering, there was zero plans for a church. Because in their mind, the church was not useful. There was no purpose for it. And it didn't fit into, this, into their dream, into their vision. And of course, like one author said, an atheistic revolutionary society of the future is not really the vibe for the local church. But there were people in this town, people, small amount of people, there were Catholics at the time, who wanted a church. Their cardinal, whose name was Carol Wachtila, who later became Pope John Paul II, he was actually part of this. And I, and, and, um, I know for some of us, not being in Catholic circles, we might wonder about this, but there was this real contrast of, of society and how the church was navigating through. There was this group of Christ followers who were Catholic that really wanted to see this church come. They, they put in for a permit in 1957. They got a permit, but then it was removed in 1960. No permit. Seven years later, 1967, they got another permit. But this time, the permit was given to them with one restriction. They were not provided any material from the state. Now, here's the thing. Everything went through the state. Concrete, bricks, wood, metal, everything went through the state. The one restriction, you can't get anything from the state. Well, how are we going to build this church? They were so determined. They mixed concrete. They made the bricks themselves. They collected two million stones, two million stones to create the outer wall of this church. And finally, in 1969, they started it. And eight years later, it was completed in 1977. How many years is that? 20 years. 20 years to see this through. They called this church, and you can see a picture on the screen. They called this church the Lord's Ark. They called it the Lord's Ark because they had this image of themselves. They, they saw this church as being like Noah's Ark on, the, on Mount Ararat after the, after the floodwaters recede. And so they built it in the shape of that that way because in their mind they realized the opposition they realized the struggle they realized you know all the difficulty in this but they also realized you know what god is with us we're gonna ride the tide of secularism in our world we'll just be present and faithful and i have a sense that maybe the rainbow image in revelation 4 was somewhat of a promise to them 
God is going to lead us. God is going to guide us. So I, I think about that as, as we, th- we think about this vision. What compels a people in a city and nation to build a church, collecting our own material, in a city where churches weren't wanted, maybe even rejected, a society whose vision is systematically atheistic with every obstacle possible against them and never even wondering, like, how much time is this going to take? And then of all things, they build an ark. Like, that's a little bit saying, you know what? Yeah, I would say, like, why not build something that the city would have liked? <laughs> now you're building a something that reminds us of who you are and maybe reminds us of your resilience. They build this ark floating over the sea of atheism in that era. And I love that story because it just reminds me that we as Christ followers need to be grounded in something bigger than our circumstances, bigger than what's going on in culture, bigger than the opposition against us. The vision of God, the one who sits on the throne, the one who is greater than any political regime, greater than any opposition, greater than any sacrifices we make, greater than any sea of unbelief. He's greater than your problems. He's greater than your pain. He's greater than our suffering. He's greater than your luxury. He's greater than your prosperity. He's greater than our distractions. We need this vision to be grounded from above. This vision of the one who is almighty, creator, and holy. So as we come to the table this morning, these elements of bread and wine remind us of who we are in Christ. Um, We're going to just worship with this older hymn that the team is going to lead us in. They'll sing a couple of uh, verses with us and then we're going to get ready for communion. If you don't have your communion elements and you want to join us today, um, there's some in the back. You can easily get them at the two tables in the back. Uh, but let's sing this song. Let's worship in this moment. Um, I want to just pray with you as we do. God, we pause because I don't know what each of us go through in detailed ways throughout the day, but I, God, I, I just have a sense that whether we are distracted or led by the luxuries in our world or whether we feel oppressed by the struggles in our world, whether we feel the tension, the rub against what it means to follow you, Lord. Maybe, maybe also just our life, whether we're Christ followers or not, God, we, we are longing for a framework, for a reference point. Oh God, I pray that this vision of you would help us see how big and wonderful and almighty and creative and powerful one who cannot be manipulated or influenced, yet one who loves greatly and gives mercy and compassion. God, may we see you for who you are and may this vision call us upwards to ground our lives in you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. 
We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.